Good evening, Sound City. How are we doing? You guys good? You're obviously all very excited about the Super Bowl, I can see. Uh, what, what game? What Super Bowl? I, I'll just say this. This is totally off script. That's the ugliest color combination of uniforms I have ever seen in any game. So you are doing yourself a favor by being here tonight. We actually had volunteers show up early this morning with Gatorade uh, and a suspicious look in their eye like they were going to pour it on me when I was done preaching. Um, so if anybody tries anything, I've alerted security tonight. As Pastor Shane said, we're going through the book of Hebrews. Really thankful for God's word each and every week, particularly thankful for tonight because the last few weeks we've really looked at these stern warning passages, some pretty intense verses in which the, the author of Hebrews is offering warnings and, and calling us to a place really of reverent fear and sobriety in our thinking to pay attention, to make sure we don't fall away or drift away from, from Jesus. And then tonight he's going to follow it up with just a real uh, gracious, loving, pastoral word of encouragement and affirmation. And so I personally am looking forward to, to teaching these verses, and I hope and pray uh, that these verses are encouraging for you as well. We're in verses 9 through 12. I'll read them, we'll pray, and then we'll spend a little bit of time uh, unpacking these verses together. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. <clears throat> God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that your word is a two-edged sword. God, there are times where your word cuts into us because there are things that need to be removed, things in our lives that are displeasing to you. And even though, God, it may be painful at times, we know that uh, you will only cut into us with your word for our good and for our growth and for our healing. And God, thankful for words like this word tonight, words of encouragement and affirmation and, uh, and an encouragement to continue to persevere to the very end. We thank you, God, that your word is life. Would you help me tonight to teach your word with truthfulness? And God, would you give each and every one of us soft and teachable hearts that we might give honor to Jesus and grow to look more like him? And it's in his name we pray. And everyone said, amen. I want to start tonight by just reminding you of something you already know, but something I think that we forget from time to time. And it's simply this. Our words have impact. How we use our words can bring life into someone or can speak death into someone. If you use your words to build up and to encourage, that's a very powerful thing, amen? But if you use your words to tear down and to destroy that can also be a very powerful thing. I've actually had conversations with people who have told me that in their life, no exaggeration, their whole entire life growing up, they never heard their dad, they never heard their mom say, I love you, I'm thankful for you, I'm proud of you. Words matter. Words are important. Our words are powerful. We know this to be true from experience, but we also know it to be true from God's word. Let me just give you a few uh, examples so that we can... Uh, we can set a framework together on this. Proverbs 12, 19, it says, truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Meaning our, our, our words can have long-lasting impacts, long-lasting ramifications. Proverbs 13, 3, whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life is saying, you, wanna, you want your life to go well? Start by watching what you say. A familiar verse, maybe to, to some of you, Proverbs 18, 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Certainly, uh, I've heard some maybe misinterpretations of that verse, or that verse being stretched to say things that it's not really trying to say, but the fact of the matter is, it says that your words are incredibly powerful, 
You can speak life or you can speak death into people's hearts and minds and lives. There's a passage in the book of James where the, the apostle James is speaking about the tongue. I'll go ahead and just quote it and read it at length because uh, it's fascinating to see how he speaks of the power of the tongue, just how powerful our words are. James 3, 2 through 10, he says, We all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Do you want to be perfect? Just never sin with your words. How's that for a New Year's resolution? He's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Just a little bit, a little piece of metal can steer a large animal. Look at ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Do you think that uh, James maybe had some problems in his church community with people using their tongues for evil, speaking ill? For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Now, again, that's kind of a negative example, but the point being, our words have weight, our words have power, our words have impact. Well, why is that? Why is it that way? And I would say to you, the simplest answer is actually found right there in verse 9. We are made in the likeness of God. God created Mankind, male and female, in his image and likeness, and our words carry power and have effect because God's words carry power and have effect. In Genesis 1, if you open to the very first page of the Bible, we meet God, he's creating the heavens and the earth. It says the, the earth was formless and void, there's darkness, there's the surface of the deep, there's just nothing much going on. And then what starts to happen? God starts to speak over and over and over and over and over again. In Genesis chapter one, it says, and God said. And you know what? Things start to happen. God speaks, light appears. God speaks, dry land appears. God speaks, things start to shuffle around. And now it's not disorganized and chaotic, but it's organized and able to be inhabited by the people that God's creating. We read this in Hebrews 11, a verse we'll get to uh, later in our study of Hebrews, but it says, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. This is the doctrine of ex nihilo, out of nothing. If you and I want to create something, we need to have some raw materials to start from. I'm always impressed by people who can do things like build a shed because I can't build a shed. I want to build a shed, but I can't build a shed. But even if I wanted to build a shed or if you had someone who was good at building a shed, they have to have the materials and the supplies to start with. What the Bible teaches is that God had no materials or supplies to start with. He simply spoke in the universe came into being. How's that for powerful? Matthew 24, 35, Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, my teachings will not pass away. Everything else is shakable. Everything else is unstable, but the words, the communication of God, the teachings and the truths of God will never pass away. <clears throat> God is a communicative God. He speaks so much so that when Jesus God, the second member of the Trinity, the Son, when he entered into the world, it actually says in the Gospel of John chapter 1 that the Word, the Logos, the communication of God became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
Our God is a communicating and a speaking God. Is that good news to you? It is to me, and it is different from what many other world religions or philosophies would teach. Because many religions would teach that God is impersonal. He is a force. There is a deity out there, but it's not one that you know or interact with or relate with on a personal level. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that this God is a talker. He's a speaking sort of God. Now, his word is ultimately powerful. God speaks and the universe is created. Our words are limited in their power, but our words still have weight and impact in the lives of other people. Now, why do I say all of that by way of introduction? Here's here's why. The author of Hebrews is going to remind us tonight just how important words of encouragement and affirmation and assurance are. As I mentioned a minute ago, we've been walking through some very difficult passages. We've been looking at these words of, of warning, where the, 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 the author of, of Hebrews is saying, you need to pay attention. Make sure that you don't drift. Make sure that you stay connected to Jesus. Make sure that you stay plugged into the vine. Make sure that you are walking with him. He gives us some very frightening illustrations of what happens when someone who claims to walk with Jesus eventually falls away. It says in the passages we looked at last week that it's impossible for them to repent and their end is destruction. Their end is to be burned. He is speaking words that, that really, if you're honest, ought to shake you and ought to rattle you. I've had multiple conversations this week with people who have said the last several weeks of sermons have really got them thinking and really got them shaken and and kind of unsettled and a lot to really chew on. And then what's just beautiful now is after the people are kind of shaken, he moves in with this beautiful word of encouragement. He He moves from correction and rebuke to comfort and assurance. And that word assurance is the key word for tonight. That word assurance really means everything. Here, here's, here's, if I could summarize the sermon, the teaching for tonight in one sentence, it would be this. God wants his children to be assured of their salvation. Plain and simple. God wants his children to live with a deep sense of confidence and comfort that they are in fact God's, that they belong to him. We need assurance. This is what it says in verse 11. I'll take these verses a little bit out of order. This is what the author of Hebrews says. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. He clearly says, this is my desire. This is what I want for you, to have full assurance. God is not pleased when his children live in a state of fear. Now, there is a good type of fear. There is a reverential type of fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the Bible says. There is a good place for self-examination. The Bible says in, in 2 Corinthians that we ought to test ourselves and examine ourselves to make sure that we are in the faith. But Through that examination and through that holy and reverent type of fear comes a deep confidence and assurance that we belong to Jesus. God is not pleased by you sitting around cowering, fearful, wondering, have I lost my salvation today? Do I really belong to Jesus? God has not given us a spirit of fear. In fact, Romans says God has given us a spirit of adoption, And because of that spirit of adoption, we're allowed to cry out, Abba, which is Daddy, Father, God. We belong to Him. Assurance is incredibly important in the life of a Christian. Let me just say this. Quick show of hands. How many of you say, this is a safe place, so let's be honest here. How many of you would ever say that every once in a while, you wrestle with doubts? Anybody? Okay, good. We're... Almost unanimous. One or two really confident people here tonight. We all, if we're being honest, struggle with doubt from time to time. God, am I really 
Am I really safe? God, am I, am I pleasing in your sight? God, do you really love me? We all have those doubts. God, are you really doing something? The circumstances in my life right now just seem chaotic. I'm not sure entirely what's going on. Are, are you really at work? We all struggle with those doubts, but through how we wrestle with those doubts, how we approach God, we can actually land in a place of deep assurance. From the Bible's perspective, there are really three primary ways that we as Christians gain assurance. There are more, but there are three primary, the big three. The first one is this. What's your response to the gospel? What's your response to the gospel? When you hear the gospel, when you hear the good news that starts with the bad news, that you and I are sinners, that we have broken God's laws, that we are separated from him, that relationship is broken, but that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him, that whoever believes that he lived a perfect life and he died on the cross in our place for our sins, and that on the third day he rose from the dead, whoever believes in him would not perish but would gain everlasting life. How does that message hit you? Do you say, yes, I need that. God, I repent of my sin. I've gotten myself into a hopeless situation. I cannot save myself. I cannot pull myself out of the mess. I need a savior. I need a rescuer. I'm crying out, have mercy on me, Jesus. Or is your response, that sounds nice. I wonder what's on TV later. Here's the thing. I I know for many of us, It might sound kind of basic. Well, of course, you shouldn't be assured of your salvation if you've never responded to the gospel. But let me tell you, there are many, many people in our culture who live with a false sense of assurance because they operate on the misbelief that people are all basically good, God grades on the curve, and at the end of time, everybody's going to get to go to heaven. They have never responded to Jesus and they are living with a false sense of assurance. So I ask you tonight, Sound City, have you responded to Jesus? Have you said, yes, I am a sinner. Yes, I will take Jesus up on his offer of grace and mercy and forgiveness. Yes, I believe that he is who he says he is. Yes, I believe that he died and rose for my salvation. Have you responded to the gospel. The second key factor in us having assurance from a biblical perspective is growing in godliness. Growing in godliness. Now, there are no perfect people here this evening. Do I get an amen? Nobody here has arrived. We've not yet attained perfection. However, the longer that you walk with Jesus, the longer that you're a Christian, you and those in your lives should be able to see areas where you have grown and you have changed to become more like him. How many of you could say, I am not where I want to be, but I'm sure glad I'm not where I used to be? How many of your wives could say that, right? I'm glad he is not where he used to be. <laughs> there is a, 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 a line, there's a trajectory in a Christian's life that, yeah, it's kind of a wiggly line. It's not always smooth. Sometimes we have some setbacks. Sometimes we really have some bad days. But overall, the Bible would teach that you should be able to look at a person's life and see more love, more joy, more peace, more patience, more kindness, more generosity, more service to the saints, more care for others, more selflessness, growth to look like Jesus. So I ask you tonight, Sound City, are you growing in godliness Not out of fear, not out of, oh, I hope I've done enough good for God to love me, but just because you understand how great his grace is. Are you growing in godliness? The third big one that we see from the scriptures is perseverance to the end. You want to be assured of your salvation? Keep persevering to the end. And this one's challenging because you don't see it until you get to the end. But... It should encourage you, the longer you walk with Jesus, that you're still walking with Jesus. Hey, it's been a really bad week. I'm still following Jesus. Hey, it's been a really bad year. I'm still following Jesus. Some of you, hey, it's been a bad decade, but I am still following 
Jesus. I am still clinging to him. He is my hope. He is my treasure. Life is all types of chaotic right now, but I have no other hope than Jesus Christ. So so we haven't reached the end yet. We don't know when the end is. We don't know when we will take our last breath. But each and every day that you persevere in following Jesus, you ought to take encouragement and you ought to see your assurance of salvation grow. How long have you walked with Jesus, Sound City? How long have you been following him? Has he been faithful to you? Praise God that his faithfulness is always better than our faithfulness. Bible says, even when we're faithless, he remains faithful. Such good word. These are the big three that the Bible constantly talks about uh, in terms of having assurance of salvation. I think there are others. There are some other ways, um, maybe more supplemental ways that can help us have assurance in our faith. I'll give you just two brief examples. One would be kind of an intellectual assurance. Uh, the, The Bible is a true book. Amen? The Bible tells a true story. Uh, it seems like every, every week now, every month, some historian, some archaeologist finds some artifact, they dig something up, and it continues to reinforce the truthfulness, the veracity, the reliability of this book. There are all sorts of cities mentioned. There are all sorts of rulers mentioned. There are all sorts of battles mentioned. And this stuff really happened. And the more that you study and the more that you learn, the more that you love the Lord your God with your mind, I've found, at least for myself, there is great assurance to be had that I haven't bought into some fairy tale that there are remarkable claims to be sure. Faith must be exercised. Oh yeah, this book claims that a man was killed and rose from the dead. That takes great faith. But I'm really thankful that the Bible doesn't call us to some blind leap of faith. It gives us all sorts of supporting evidences to help us know that our faith is true. With all due respect and, and love to our Mormon friends and neighbors, they have a book full of stories and battles and cities, and there is a grand total of zero archaeological evidence to back any of that up. But this book is a truthful book. This book tells us a true story. That's not ultimate assurance, but it sure is helpful, isn't it? For others of you, maybe another way to have assurance uh, could be kind of the, maybe the inner peace test. I've had conversations with people where they would describe their life before they met Jesus as one of fear and anxiety and inner turmoil, and they met Jesus, and he just gave them a real sense of peace in their heart and in their soul. How many of you would say that's been an experience that you've had? Now, again, emotions can't be our ultimate litmus test because emotions come and go and emotions can be manipulated, but isn't it great to know that there are people who meet Jesus and they find that he does a real work in their hearts and they no longer feel agitated and, and upset and fearful all the time. They now can have a sense of peace within their heart and within their soul. Those can't be our ultimate place of assurance, but they're really helpful. They're really helpful. There's one other one that's specifically highlighted in these verses. Let's go back to verse 9 and look at this. Though we speak in this way, in what way? The scary way? (laughs) The fearful warning way? Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure, we feel confident, we are quite certain of better things things that belong to salvation. Yes, dear listeners, I know that I've been speaking in some pretty intense ways. I know that many of you feel shaken up by this, but I want you to know something. I know you. I know your lives. I love you, and I want you to understand that I have great confidence that you genuinely are saved, and what I have been speaking of is not true for you. I love that this pastor This one who's speaking this sermon speaks in such a loving and comforting and reassuring way to his listeners. Isn't that great? You know that we all need words of encouragement? Do you know that we all need words of affirmation? There's a study that was done a little over a decade ago. I've referenced it before. I went back and read it again this week as part of my preparation. There was a Florida State University professor who did a study about the impact of negative words versus positive words. 
And what he found was that negative words have a greater impact than positive words by a factor of seven to one. Seven to one, meaning it would take seven positive statements to counteract the emotional weight of one negative statement. If I stood up here tonight and said something negative to you, like, you guys look like a bunch of Carolina Panthers fans or something just awful like that, right? I would have to, sorry, Julia, I would have to say seven really nice things to counteract that one negative thing that I said for it to feel emotionally the same. He found that people were more upset about losing money than they were about finding money. People would lose $50, they were upset about it for several days. People would find $50, they were happy for like a minute. He also found, this one's interesting, he also found that people who say negative things are perceived as being smarter than people who say positive things. I don't know why that is necessarily, but I found that really interesting. I think it has something to do with our fallen condition. I think we just find it easier to slide into the pattern, to slide into the ditch of just using our words in negative ways. I would submit to you we're not particularly good at giving praise, at giving encouragement, at speaking words of affirmation. If you went into work this week and your boss walked up to you and put a hand on your shoulder and said, you know, you're a really valuable member of this team and I love your positive attitude that you always bring and I'm just so thankful for you being here and, and boy, if you ever decide to move on, I don't know what we would ever do with you, without you and we just really love and appreciate you here. If you had that experience this week at work, you're probably in the minority, <laughs> Right? More of you probably had the experience of, hey, where were you? You were six minutes late. Sorry, Seattle traffic. We don't traffic in these types of encouraging statements as much as we ought to. By God's grace, I had a couple of people just reach out to me kind of out of the blue this week. Thankful for you, appreciate you, praying for you. I tell you what, that feels really, really good, doesn't it? When words of encouragement come that are very powerful. When words of encouragement come from somebody who's in a place of authority or influence, that's really powerful. This is a pastor. This is a leader. This isn't just anybody. This is someone who they look up to speaking these words of encouragement. Words of affirmation, words of encouragement, when they come from somebody in a position of leadership or authority or influence, that's even more powerful you all have areas of authority. You all have areas of influence. You all have people who look up to you in some way, shape, or form. How are you using your words to build them up? Some of you maybe run a company. You have employees. Maybe you need to be that boss that I just described a minute ago. Yes, it will feel unusual. It's not common for us in our culture. But give those praises. Give those encouragements. Some of you are parents. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom and you've got little ones looking up to you. Use your words to build them up and encourage what you love about them. Some of you, maybe you're single and you say, I don't run a company and I'm not, I don't have kids, uh, but you have friends and you have people who look to you as a person of influence. Use your words to build them up. Assurance comes from having others in your life who can see things, who can see the growth in you. If you're ever wondering, maybe, maybe I'm not growing in Christ as much as I should. Maybe I'm not really saved. Maybe I'm having moments of doubt or fear. Do you have community around you? Do you have people who know you well enough that they can speak into your life words of encouragement? And what I really love is that the author of Hebrews, he doesn't just speak a generic word of encouragement. He actually gives some very specific words. Look in verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Uh, this last week, uh, my two oldest daughters, they had to do a presentation of some sort. I don't know exactly what it was, but at school they had to stand up and they had to read in front of their classmates. And the classmates, these are fifth and fourth graders, were uh, instructed to fill out a response card. You know, a little three by five index card, fill it out, give some feedback, give some you know, constructive whatever. And I, I was looking through the stack of cards that the fifth graders and the fourth graders produced. And I'm flipping down. Good job. Great job. You did good. Good job. You spoke clearly and articulated well. That's a good one. Good job. Good job. Great job. I mean, they were about as non-helpful as you could imagine. Good job. I'm not trying to pick on fifth graders. I, have, I like fifth graders. They're fine. 
But this was, this was just a generic, hey, you did a good job. That's not what the author of Hebrews does, is it? He, he's very specific. He says, God's not unjust. He's not gonna overlook some things. God notices some things, and the author of Hebrews says, I notice them too. Let me call your attention to a couple phrases. The first one is this, the love that you have shown for his name. The author of Hebrews says, I see how much you love Jesus. I had a conversation with someone this week talking about Jesus, and at one point, this person started speaking about Jesus and the grace that he has shown and the forgiveness of sin, and this person started to tear up just talking about Jesus. I thought, that's beautiful. It was encouraging and inspiring for me. I could see that this person really loved Jesus. Sound City, I ask you, do you love Jesus? Do you treasure Jesus? Do you see him as infinitely valuable, as of infinite worth? Let me ask you this question. Do you love Jesus as much as you should? No. None of us love Jesus as much as we should. There's always room to grow in our affections for Jesus. But I ask you, do you love Jesus? I know you do. I get the privileges as, as one of the pastors to get to have many conversations with people. And I hear the affection, the love that so many of you have for our Savior Jesus. This is not a religion that you're following. This is not a lifestyle that you've chosen to commit to. This is a relationship that you are walking in. Do you love Jesus? Then he says, I see your works of service. God won't overlook your work or serving the saints. He says, it's not just that you love Jesus, but that love for Jesus actually overflows into taking care of other people, into serving the saints. As we read later in Hebrews, we'll see that this group of people was very active and very involved in taking care of the practical needs of others. So I ask you, Sound City, do you love to serve the saints? Do you love to take care of other people? Do you love to meet their practical needs? Do you love to minister to them in a wide variety of ways? I'll tell you what, Sound City, I see it. I see you guys serving. I see you guys. There are people who open their homes on a weekly basis to host a community group, like real actual people coming in, putting footprints on your floors, dirtying your dishes. They don't tip at all. And then they just leave, and, and people are joyful and glad to do it. Why? Not because they're in it for some great financial reward, because they just love the people, and they want to have the, a place for the people to gather, to study the scriptures, pray, have a conversation. There are people who come and serve our children at the morning services, teaching them the word of God, teaching them about Jesus. It is rare that you have a child walk up to a teacher and say, oh, teacher Susie, I'm so thankful for the word of God that you've implanted in my heart, and it's growing up as a seed into a, a rich tree. No, usually they go, can I have a piece of candy? Okay, bye. You're gonna see those results later. You're not doing children's ministry for the instant reward. You're playing the long game. But you do it, and you do it faithfully. I know people in this room that volunteer to serve people at the Union Gospel Mission, to take care of those who are homeless or, or going through a tough season. There are people who uh, give of their finances. There are people who give of their time. There are people who meet with others to just pray for them and cry with them when they're broken and experiencing the cuts and bruises of life. I see it, Sound City. I wanna practice what I'm preaching. I see it in you. You guys are a service-hearted group of people. That is another great evidence that God has genuinely done a work. And I love this, the third phrase, as you still do, as you still do, because we all know that it's possible to get really excited about a project or a cause, dive into it with gusto, and then after a little while get bored, right? I mean, we've, we've heard of people that have done things like that. Not, none of us, obviously. But he's saying, no, 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 you love Jesus you serve the saints and you still do it. You just keep on doing it. You're faithful, you're persistent, you're reliable, you still do it. I love the persistence of this church body. I love the faithfulness of this church body. There are people, we, we have volunteers who come and serve at the church and we look over the list of volunteers. It is a rare thing 
when somebody just says, I'll help out, and then they don't show up. Usually we have to tell people to take a break or take a, a night off. So thankful for the faithfulness that I see here. I'm encouraged by you. I like you. I don't know if you know that. I actually like you guys. I, I, uh, I took a family vacation a couple of weeks ago. I missed a Sunday, and I was, I was missing you guys. As a pastor, yeah, I have to love you, but I actually like you. And I found that very encouraging, how much I was, I was just desiring to be around the people of God, to serve. We can be assured by godly living, and we can help encourage one another by the godly living we see. Now, I want to remind you, just I always want to be crystal clear on this. This godly living that we see, these are the things that belong to salvation. These things don't contribute to our salvation. They are things that flow out of our salvation. Am I making myself clear? We don't love Jesus so that we'll be saved. We don't serve the saints or be faithful so that we'll be saved. But once we have been saved, once we have been given God's grace, these are the things that start to flow out of us. And then he turns it back to this idea of persevering again. He's gonna use his words to continue to encourage us towards faithfulness in Jesus. Verse 11, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope. How, how much assurance does God want you to have? Full assurance. Not kind of, sort of assurance, full assurance to know that you belong to Jesus. Full assurance of hope to the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He gives this encouragement. I see it in you. I'm thankful for you. Now, keep going. I see the work of God in you. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. He says, I want you to be earnest until the end. Very serious, very sincere, all the way to the end. He says, don't be sluggish. I like that word, sluggish, like a slug, just kind of slow and oozing, right? Kind of sounds like February, honestly. Cloudy, rainy, I'm just kind of sluggish. No, he says, I, I want you to be earnest in your following of Jesus, earnest in your desire to have this assurance of faith. Don't get sluggish, don't get lazy, keep pressing hard after the prize, he also says something that I think is very, very helpful for us. He says, I want you to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. How many of you know that persevering is a lot easier when you have someone to follow? Hey, they're doing it. I could do it. Hey, they're doing it. I don't know if I could do it as good as them, but I can try. The apostle Paul in one of his letters, he, he instructs the people, he says, I want you to follow me as I follow Christ. So let me ask you two questions. Do you have someone in your life, and actually even better, someones that you can look to, that you can imitate their faith and their patience? And the other side of that coin is, who are you being someone that they can follow and they can imitate? I think sometimes we often look for mentors, we look for people to follow, but I don't think we expend the same amount of energy looking for people to lead and to invest in. Would you agree? We all like to be led. We all like to have someone pouring into us. But sometimes what we really need to do is be someone that can be imitated. And what are we imitating? We're imitating their faith and we're imitating their patience. Their faith I know that Jesus is better. I know that Jesus is who he says he is. I know that Jesus has forgiven me of my sins. I know that I belong to Jesus. I have faith in him and patience. Hey, life isn't going so great right now, but I trust that God is doing something in my life, that he's doing something that will ultimately bring him glory and will bring me good. Faith and patience. We're not gonna read the verses tonight, but he's gonna immediately go into using the story of Abraham as kind of an example. Abraham is someone who 
God came to him and made a promise. He said, Abraham, I'm going to give you so many offspring. I'm going to give you so many descendants that it's going to be like the stars in the sky. You won't even be able to count how many offspring you have. And through your descendants, through your offspring, I am going to bless all of the nations of the earth. Ultimately, that being a reference to Jesus, the one who comes from Abraham's line, the one who blesses all nations of the earth by giving salvation. And Abraham says, God, that's, that's great. I like the sound of that. Could we get going on that? Because I'm almost 90 and I have zero kids right now. God goes, yeah, we'll get to that. How many of you know that God's timetable sometimes doesn't line up with our timetable? God sometimes has plans that he wants to. I've been guilty of this. God, I, I have a great plan. Would you please follow my plan? I know how this should all go. God says, no, I want you to, I want you to grow in patience. Can I have that patience now, God? Uh, I'd like to have that patience right now. Who are you imitating? Who are those that have exercised faith and patience for a long time in Jesus? We need those types of people that we can look to and the result of all of this is full assurance of hope. When we're built up by someone speaking words of life to us, when we're built up by others in our life who, who know us, when we're built up by continuing to persevere and having people that we can imitate, we get full assurance of hope. Now, let me close with this thought. <clears throat> you say, I want that full assurance of hope. But I still struggle with doubt. Remember earlier when we all raised our hands that we struggled with doubts and fears from time to time? The question is, what do I do with those doubts? What do I do with those fears? I want this full assurance of hope, but I'm afraid I don't have it yet. What do I do? Let me just remind you that how much assurance you feel isn't the basis for how much assurance you should have. Your feelings are a terrible indicator. One of the songs that we sing, the hymn, it says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We don't trust in ourselves. We don't trust in our own confidence. We trust in Jesus. And I would say to you that God uses those doubts. Sometimes those doubts crop up. Maybe they come from within our own hearts. Maybe they are an attack from the enemy where he tries to bring a voice of accusation against us. I believe that God uses those doubts when they, when they crop up to draw us closer to him. Oh, I'm feeling fearful. I'm feeling doubt. I had better run to Jesus. I had better cling to him. There's a pastor, J.D. Greer, says it this way, faith is not the absence of doubt, it's continuing to follow Jesus in the midst of doubt. It reminds me of a story where a man comes to Jesus and wants him to, to heal his son. And Jesus says, yes, all things are possible for the one who believes. Actually, the guy says, hey, if it's possible, could you heal my son? And Jesus kind of uh, a little bit rebukes him. Is it possible? All things are possible for the one who believes. And the father cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. Isn't that just an accurate and real portrayal of how we often are? God, I do believe you, but I don't believe you enough. Would you help me? Would you help my heart in these areas where I still struggle? I believe, help my unbelief. The ground of our assurance is not how strongly we believe and how assured we feel. The ground is Jesus Christ. There was a conference about a week and a half, two weeks ago, uh, which a, a pastor, Don Carson, um, gave a, a speech, gave a, a sermon, and there was a clip that started making the rounds on social media, and I watched it, and he was speaking to this very subject of, of how we have assurance before God. And uh, I was thinking about trying to paraphrase it and summarize it, but I thought, actually, he just does such a brilliant job, and we've got a projector. How about I just play the clip for you guys? And so I want to share this with you uh, from Don Carson, a great pastor, biblical scholar, one who I've quoted many times. I love this story, this analogy he uses of two children of Israel the night before the Passover. Uh, I want you to hear how he phrases it. I think it's just incredibly helpful. So go ahead and play the clip now, if you would. Picture two Jews by the name of Smith and Brown, remarkably Jewish names. 
the day before the first Passover, having a little discussion in the land of Goshen. And Smith says to Brown, boy, are you a little nervous about what's going to happen tonight? Brown says, well, God told us what to do through his servant Moses. You don't have to be nervous. Haven't you slaughtered the, the lamb and daubed the two doorposts with blood, put blood on the lintel? Haven't you, you done that? You're all ready and packed to go? You're going to eat the, the whole Passover meal with your family? Well, of course I've done that. If I'm not stupid. But it's still pretty scary. When you think of all the things that have happened around here recently, you know, flies and river turning to blood, and it's pretty awful. And, and, and now there's a threat of the firstborn being killed, you know? It's all right for you. You got three sons. I've only got one. And I love my Charlie, and, 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 and the angel of death is passing through tonight, you, you, you know? I, I know what, what God says, and I put the blood there, but, but it's pretty scary. I'll be glad when this night is over. And the other one responds, bring it on. I trust the promises of God. That night, the angel of death swept through the land. Which one lost his son? And the answer, of course, is neither. Because death doesn't pass over them on the ground of the intensity or the clarity of the faith exercised. But on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. That's what silences the accuser. The blood silences the accuser of the brothers as he accuses us before God. He silences our consciences when he accuses us directly. How many times do we writhe in agony asking if God can ever love us enough, if God can ever care for us enough after we've done such stupid, sinful, rebellious things, after being Christians for 40 years? What are you going to say? Well, you know, God, I, I tried hard, you know. I did, I did my best. It was, a, it was a bad moment. No, 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 no. I have no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. We overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. There is the ground of all human assurance before God. There is the ground of our faith, not guaranteeing intensity of faith, so fickle are we. It's not the intensity of our faith, but the object of our faith that saves. They overcome him on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. Isn't that good? It's not the intensity of the faith that saves, but the object of our faith. So this week... Whether you come in feeling quite confident, maybe you are just very assured of your salvation, you're standing before God, or whether you come in tonight feeling fearful, like you've fallen for the thousandth time, either way, it's not your confidence, it's not your assurance that saves, it's Jesus' blood. And that ought to give us more assurance. And so we can run to him. And I want to invite us in light of that now to a time of responding to Jesus. We're going to respond as we do in a variety of ways. The first is through the giving of our tithes and offerings. I'd like to invite the financial stewards to come forward and collect the offering now if they would. If you're a guest or a visitor with us, just know there's no obligation for you to give. You're welcome to if you'd like. And for all of us, remember, this is not something that we do to earn God's love or to impress God. We do this in simple response and gratitude to God's love. And so as they're collecting the offering now, I'd like to read a few discussion questions, things to help uh, our conversations this week in our community groups. First one is this, discuss the evidences of a redeemed life or the things that belong to salvation with your group. Uh, if someone is truly saved, what evidences should we see? Number two, who has been an encourager in your life and who has been a good model for you to imitate? And this one comes with a, a bonus round follow-up. Not only should you share that with your, your community group, uh, people who have encouraged you, but this might be a really good week to send a text message or a note or a phone call or invite out to coffee and just thank that person for being someone to look up to. Thank them for being someone who's invested in you. 
Number three, who do you need to encourage? Who is looking to you as an example? And if the answer is no one, well, then this one also comes with some bonus round follow-up. Who, who is God putting in your life that maybe you need to disciple, that you need to help them grow in their faith in Jesus? And then number four, discuss this quote, faith is not the absence of doubt, it is continuing to follow Jesus in the midst of doubt. And I would just invite you to be vulnerable. Where do you have doubts? And where is Jesus asking you to follow him even with those doubts? A couple of things to pray about this week. Pray that our hearts would be encouraged and assured in Jesus. Pray that we would persevere as disciples to the very end and pray for those who are not yet Christians that they could come to know the true hope and assurance that are found in Jesus Christ alone. We're gonna respond through a celebration of the Lord's table where the bread and the wine speak to us of Jesus' broken body and his blood that was poured out for us. And today as you come and you eat and drink of, of the table, I pray that God would minister his grace to you in such a way that you grow in your assurance. When you taste of the bread and the wine, remember, it's not the intensity of your faith that saves you, but the object. It's Jesus. If you're not a Christian, I would invite you to abstain. This is a practice for Christians. Uh, abstain and, and consider what it is that we're doing, or even better, give your sin to Jesus. Give your life to him. Place your faith in him, and then join us at the table for the first time as a Christian. We're going to sing. Elizabeth and the band are going to lead us in a, a time of singing and celebrating this great grace that we have received. And these songs will help us to remember our assurance that we have. And so I'd like to invite you to stand if you would, and I'll pray, and we'll begin our time of response. God, thank you that our assurance doesn't come from within ourselves. Because I at least know for myself, I have good days, I have bad days, I have moments when I'm strong, I have moments when I'm weak. And God, I thank you that we can have assurance in greater measure knowing that we belong to you. And I pray that for my brothers and sisters here. God, I pray you would help us right now in this time of response to be thankful and to rejoice in the goodness, the salvation that we've received. Help us to fix our eyes and to fix our hearts on Jesus in whose good name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Church, let's respond to Jesus now through singing and through communion.